Hello all and the warmest welcomes to yet another instalment of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, your premier North Wales spare room based one person true crime show that seeks to recount those tales that are a bit unfamiliar, often unbelievable and unreal from all corners of the UK and Ireland. Bringing you these as ever is myself, Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title. You guys are the wonderful enthusiasts that keep me doing what I do, what I love doing. It's fantastic as ever having you joining me and I hope that as you do hear this that you and yours are all good and you're all well. So this week brings a last minute change to the schedule and the planned episode I'll now do when I'm back from having a short week's break on March the 11th. I've got crazy busy times with a pension plan at the moment and I don't want to put out something I feel myself is rushed or substandard. I've, as I've said before, set very high standards for myself here. But I also want to carry on the momentum of the series for this week too because I'm building up to the first multi-parter of the series. And then next week it'll be Patreon episode week and then I'll be back and cracking on. And just so you know, this is the fifth episode of the series and not one so far has been any of the initial cases that I sketched out towards the end of the last series for this one. That's what I mean, these things just choose themselves sometimes. There really is no other way that I can explain it. So I've decided this week to reach into the back catalogue of the show Patreon episodes once again, and after a lot of umming and ahhing, I've chosen a tale from last year to bring for an episode this week. Now episode bonus episode number 38 is coming and it'll be out in just a couple of days. And for your information, a tiny spoiler that gives absolutely bugger all away, but this month's episode is entitled Disfigured. So I'm sure you can imagine it's not going to be a very pleasant story. Stories. And new supporters who'll be able to hear this firsthand this week are June, Joanna Wally, Daniel Fry and Zane Araya. Apologies if I've said anybody's name wrong there. With thanks to them and to my returning supporters for doing so. Each of your rules, you really do, guys. Now, if you want to join these kind folk in hearing Disfigured, plus other unreleased tales such as The Beauty in the Bikini, The Bravo Two Heroes, or To Kill and Kill Again, then doing so is super easy and it takes less time than counting the number of times you've been for a night out in the past year. Just head on over to the Patreon site and seek the show out there. Always remember the podcast suffix on it. Just choose your tier and you're in like Flynn. Perhaps you're even awaiting some stuff coming out to you from me. Who knows? If you can't wait until March the 11th also, then how about tuning in to catch me and Adam, the host of the UK True Crime Podcast, talking live on Crowdcast next Thursday, March the 4th at 7.30pm UK time, where we should be putting the world to rights for a bit. Who knows? Rochdale Saunas and Ken Barlow may pop up. Two things which I'd bet me months wages have been in a sentence before together, I'm sure they have. And then the floor is open to you guys to ask us stuff. Now I'm thoroughly looking forward to it, I can't wait to speak to Adam and yourselves, and seeing some of you guys there. Details of how to join can be found if you head on over and look in the episode show notes this week. So as I said earlier, this time around I've reached into the back catalogue of the show's Patreon episodes and I've brought you a tale that I covered last year. Now just because I've used one now, I'll still be releasing one on the show's September birthday. That's a tradition I like doing and I'm not going to break it. 
it's just sometimes nice to have a bit of a back catalogue to bring to you, because there are some of these tales that I'd love to come to the wider audience. To try and make it seem as fresh to listeners who've already heard the tale, I've also re-recorded the episode. There may be some tweaks in it, not too many, but there may be some, and I hope that it is a tale that you find informative and interesting. Now I've chosen a horrendous case which I covered, which has to cont- it has to be one of the most callous acts that I think I've ever come across, and it will stay with you, trust me this will. And for it, we're off to the small village of Presbury in the English county of Cheshire. It's football haven because it's probably only the likes of Messi who could afford to live there. It's that bloody posh, you know. They don't have a Jim, they have a James. For the episode also, I went to Presbury myself for a visit at the time and have a bit of a film of the crime scene. So the accompanying videos will be released in the show's Facebook discussion group along with the episode. And it was a bloody nightmare of a place to get to at the time. Apocalyptic 2020 decided that it just hadn't been shit enough. And back when I decided to go there, the storms that we'd had, there was loads of flooding in the days before it, and decided to close many of the roads to Presbury off. But I did manage to get there in the end because come so close and you just do soldier on through, don't you? The episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing, so please use discretion whilst you're listening all. With that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiast for an episode that I've entitled A Lonely Death on Gun Hill. So, as I aforementioned, for this episode, we're off to the Cheshire village of Presbury, a small, very affluent village on the River Bolling. Now, it's very well kept, as can be seen from the numerous best-kept village plaques that are affixed to the wall of the fine and country estate agents in the village. It's decidedly very middle class, and is reportedly one of the major points of the Golden Triangle, which is an area of affluent towns and villages that are some of the most sought-after places to live in outside London. Today, these places are considered footballer haven, Presbury in particular being a favoured place for Premier League footballers, particularly Manchester United players. Other notable residents it's harboured in the past include Paddy McGuinness, let the true crime see the enthusiast, get lost if you don't know what I'm talking about, you must have watched Take Me Out at some point, world sideburns champion Noddy Holder, and comedian and impressionist Mike Yarwood, who was a big TV star in the 70s and 80s, but then disappeared like bloody Glenn Miller or MySpace. Perhaps he's still friends with Tom, who knows. But something seemed to have gone wrong at the Presbury branch of Williams and Glynn's bank in the early afternoon of Friday, February the 25th, 1977. A customer wishing to withdraw money from the bank just after its lunchtime reopening tried the door and found it to be locked, although it was 10 minutes past its reopening time of 1pm. Moments later, another customer, a local woman, also arrived looking to do the same thing, and shared the first customer's surprise that the normally efficient village bank was still closed. As the two talked and grumbled, as people do when they kept waiting for things, you know, She offered the possible explanation that the bank had just had a new duty under-manager, a young man who'd only arrived at the Presbury branch on the previous Wednesday, and that as he was new in his post, he may have simply forgotten the time. 
but when knocking on the door of the bank and then ringing the doorbell still failed to get any answer, the customers were at a loss, so they decided to telephone another branch of the bank, the sister branch of Williamson Glynn in the town of Macclesfield, which is some three miles away. Staff there were also at a loss as to why the Presbury branch remained closed, by this time some 30 minutes after it should have reopened post-lunchtime, and telephoned the Presbury branch, but received no reply. A check with the post office confirmed that the telephone line was in full working order, so the Macclesfield branch contacted the staff at J.R. Bridgeford estate agents, who had offices in the adjoining premises to the Presbury branch, and whom they knew well. Two of the estate agent staff went around to the bank and tried both the front and the rear doors of the premises, but discovered exactly what the two customers had reported, that the place was fully locked up and the window blinds were down. Shortly after they'd reported their findings back, 56 minutes after the branch should have reopened post-lunchtime, two officials and key holders from the Macclesfield branch arrived in Pressbury to investigate. Using their master key, they opened the door and entered the bank, leaving the two customers outside on the street. However, the door didn't reopen, and shortly afterwards, a police car arrived, and two uniformed officers hurried inside the bank. Inside the bank, the scene that had greeted the two officials from Macclesfield, that had led to them immediately contacting police through the bank's alarm system, was something that neither of them would ever forget. The walls and counter of the bank were covered in splashes of blood and initially there was no one in sight. But as they approached the end of the counter, they'd stopped at what they saw, hesitant to look any further. Sticking out, just visible around the end of the counter, was a pair of men's feet. The two men moved forward and on the floor behind the counter lay the body of the newly appointed branch under-manager, 22-year-old Ian Nicholas Jeb, who lay on his back, fully clothed, bound and gagged, in a pool of blood. Not wanting to disturb the scene, the two officials summoned the police via the bank's alarm, and then telephoned for an ambulance. Mere minutes later, two officers had arrived in response to the alarm, and whilst one officer, PC John Davis, went immediately to Ian in an attempt to administer first aid, although sadly to no response, the other was on the radio requesting assistance and gathering as much information as he could about the identity of the victim. Through speaking to the shocked officials, because it must do, mustn't it? It's not every day that you find a murder scene and a body, is it? The officer managed to glean the information that the victim was Ian Jeb who had worked for the Williams and Glynn Bank since leaving school, but had only been the newly appointed under-manager of the Presbury branch for just three days, having transferred from the Macclesfield branch only the previous Wednesday. When asked if Ian had run the small village branch on his own, one of the officials turned paler, shook his head, and told the officer with a sinking feeling, Susan, Susan Hockenhall, She's a young bank clerk at the branch. She should be here now. 19-year-old Susan Hockenhall, or Smiling Susan, as she was known to the locals who frequented the bank because of her constant pleasant demeanour, 
had worked at the Pressbury Bank for just over a year, following a transfer from a branch near to the village of Gorseworth, some five miles away, where Susan still lived in a bungalow at Middlemoss Farm, with her parents, David and Violet, her 12-year-old sister, Diane, and her beloved dog, Peppy. A quiet and somewhat shy girl, she was nevertheless pleasant and hard-working, and was liked very much by staff and customers alike who was now missing from the scene. Without another word then, the two officers began searching the premises. Now whilst they would have waited normally to avoid disturbing the scene, this was information that there should be another person present, but wasn't, and that somewhere in the bank, there may be another person seriously injured, requiring immediate medical assistance, or perhaps even another body for at no time was it even considered that Susan was possibly responsible for Ian Jeb's death or the theft of any money. This was considered a murder kidnapping by person or persons unknown from the off. However, despite a complete sweep of the premises, no trace of Susan Hockenhall was anywhere to be found. Her raincoat and handbag were found in the small staff room at the rear, indicating that she had indeed been there that morning and had returned from lunch, but where she was right then was unknown. The officer was back onto the radio to inform his headquarters that along with a murder victim, they now had a missing person from the scene also. By 5.20pm, Home Office pathologist Dr Geoffrey Garrett had arrived at the scene. Now his memoirs, Cause of Death, Memoirs of a Home Office Pathologist, written by Dr Garrett and the Manchester Evening News crime reporter Andrew Knott, were a fantastic source in researching and writing this episode. I do thoroughly recommend the book, and he describes the scene as follows. I arrived and was shown Ian's body lying face up behind the counter of the bank in pools of blood, with splashes under the counter and on the wall behind his head. A cloth gag made from torn strips of a blue sheet was across his mouth, secured with a single knot below the left ear, and his hands had been tied behind his back with twin-flex electrical cable. By 6.30pm, Ian Jeb had been certified dead, the body had been photographed in situ at the scene, and removed to West Park Hospital in Macclesfield, where a post-mortem by Dr Garrett would shortly begin. Back at the bank, meanwhile, more police officers had arrived and a murder investigation, led by Detective Superintendent Arthur Morris, had been launched a short time later. Detective Superintendent Morris asked the bank officials to ascertain what was missing from the scene, to check whether this was indeed a robbery motive for the killing and apparent kidnapping of Susan, whilst uniformed officers began inquiries around the business premises that neighboured the bank and spoke to the crowd of onlookers and would-be customers that were now gathered outside the bank having a nose, as is human nature to do, because you do just stand and rubberneck, don't you? Some of these spoken to believed that they'd noticed a man entering the bank just before its lunchtime closing, whilst others had claimed to have seen a man leaving the bank with a young blonde woman, strongly matching Susan's description. Five foot six inches tall, slim, fair-haired, with a mole on her right cheek, and sporting a Purdy-style haircut, which was a blonde bob type made fashionable by actress Joanna Lumley as a character of the same name in the 1970s TV series The New Avengers. 
Leaving the premises and getting into a van, although fuller descriptions of this man were vague. Ian Jebb had lived 13 miles away from Presbury in the Highlands Road area of the Offerton district of the town of Stockport with his family, whilst as we said before, Susan hailed from the village of Gorseworth some 5 miles away, so officers were dispatched to the homes of both to inform their families. At Ian's home they found only his stepmother Hilda there, who directed officers to the printing firm where his father Roy worked, and Ian's shattered father was shortly taken to the hospital mortuary to identify his son's body. Meanwhile, Ian's stepmother telephoned the bank where his fiancée, 22-year-old Avis Pollitt, where she worked. The couple had been engaged for two years and were planning to marry in August of that year. That Friday morning, Ian had telephoned Avis at work to ask her advice about an accounting procedure that he was unsure of, and the couple had had a bit of a laugh together when Avis had pointed out what her fiancé was doing wrong. His last words to her had been, See you tonight, love. Less than two hours later, Ian Jeb was dead. A shattered Avis told the Daily Mirror newspaper the following day, Ian was a wonderful person. I don't know how I'm going to live without him. The bank has a strict rule about raids. Give them the money. My boss at work broke the news to me, and I just broke down. I just hope everything possible is done to catch the horrible people who murdered him. I loved Ian dearly, and I don't know how I will get over the shock. Susan's family, as you can imagine, were equally as distraught. Detective Superintendent Morris told the media that Friday afternoon There is a strong possibility that Miss Hockenhall has been taken hostage. We know nothing more at this stage and are extremely worried for this girl. We must trace Susan for her own safety. I appeal to anyone who may be holding her against her will to give her up. She's a nice girl who hasn't done anyone any harm. Whilst the senior officer, Detective Chief Superintendent Jerry Williams, the head of Cheshire CID, added, This was a most vicious attack. There were a number of wounds and therefore the person or persons we are looking for are obviously very dangerous. I don't know whether one, two or three men were involved, but if this girl is injured somewhere, we want to find her as soon as possible. She must have been taken out through the front door of the bank in broad daylight. And as this is a small village, we hope that someone will have seen something that will help us find her. And if anyone is holed up in this village, we want to find them. Susan's shocked parents, upon being informed, had moved themselves down to her grandparents' farm to be near to a telephone, as they themselves were not on the phone. And her father David, with what was going through his mind, it must have been unimaginable told reporters we want to hear instantly if there's any news i can't believe anyone would want to harm susan she's such a nice girl so pleasant and so quiet in an appeal to the man who had taken her an uncle of susan's paul hockenhall furthered we ask the man involved to give us some sign that susan is all right just allow us to talk to her for just a few minutes. We'll be sitting by the telephone every minute and we ask this man to please, please call us. We're completely in his hands. We feel so helpless. 
despite the unimaginable grief or shock that you name it that the Jeb family were going through at the same time, Mr. Jeb also issued an appeal to Susan's abductor, saying, I can only pray that Susan is unharmed. What the girl is going through is beyond imagination. I know how I am suffering, but I can only wonder just how much her family are suffering. Even when he was dead and I held him in my arms, I couldn't accept that Ian had gone. I kept remembering lots of things about him and couldn't face the fact that he'd been stabbed to death. He was such a happy lad, I was proud to be his father. On earth do you say to that, eh? What do you say to it? By this time, the post-mortem on Ian Jeb had been undertaken by Dr. Garrett. Due to the body temperature of 30 degrees centigrade and rigor mortis beginning to set in, it was established that death had taken place no more than six hours previously from when he'd arrived at the scene, putting the death around lunchtime, and that there had been a scuffle as marks to the body of Ian Jeb showed. The waistcoat he'd been wearing when found showed two cuts to the front left side of it, another single one to the front right side, two to the rear of it, and one to the left shoulder. There was a superficial laceration an inch in length to Ian's left upper eyelid, and a significant wound, one and a half inches deep, below the right ear. The back of his head also showed three ragged lacerations, each around an inch in length, on the left side of the occipital area, with severe bruising showing internally in the scalp. The killer had severely beaten Ian, either before or after tying and gagging him, striking him with a heavy blunt object two, possibly three times. But this had not proven fatal, and the violence had continued. The front of Ian's chest showed two lacerations, both of which had penetrated to a depth of two and a half inches, as well as a further two wounds of a similar depth to his back, with all four appearing to have been inflicted with a double-edged knife bearing a blade of some four inches. There were two puncture wounds to Ian's left side which had both entered the lower lobe of the lungs, and the chest also had a wound some three inches in length that had been caused by a combination of the former two chest wounds. This wound had entered the pericardium and the front of the heart, causing a transverse wound two and a half inches long, which had entered both the right and left ventricles of the heart, severed the interventricular septum, and damaged the mitral valve. It was a wound that would have led to massive blood loss, and would have proven swiftly fatal. The sequence of events, then, was estimated to be that Ian had been clubbed over the head, tied and gagged, and then, whilst in a sitting position, helpless and terrified, had been stabbed multiple times for no apparent reason except for sheer bloodlust. Susan had been forced to witness this, and had then been abducted by the killer, and taken who knows where. Meanwhile, back at the bank, officials had discovered that the killer had fled with less than £2,500 in cash, £2,444 to be exact, but had ignored larger sums that were on the premises. Almost £10,000 in cash had not been touched. Senior officials of the Williams and Glynn Bank told police that, categorically, employees of their branches had been told that if their branch was ever robbed, 
on no account were they to resist. They were simply to hand over the money, taking no risks to themselves whatsoever. But underneath the counter, by the feet of Ian Jeb's body, was an alarm button that the men from Macclesfield had alerted police with. Had Ian tried to press this, or tried to be a have-a-go hero, and was killed for his attempts. We shall continue following a short word from the episode's sponsors. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now we can all agree that the past year was a hellish one for everyone, wasn't it? And understandably, some of us are struggling still, aren't we? Perhaps for some it might just be the effects of the situation that the whole world faces right now, but others may have more specific things troubling them. I know for me, on a personal level, this year I've suffered loss and a drastic change in my working patterns that have left me concerned and conscious of being there for my nearest and dearest as much and as best that I can, trying to strike a good work-life balance because they don't always happen then, do they? So whatever is interfering with your happiness, this is where better help can help you. Now just to clarify, this isn't self-help, BetterHelp instead assesses your needs and matches you up with your very own licensed professional therapist, who has specialised in all manner of issues from relationship or family conflicts right through to depression and stress for professional counselling. BetterHelp is available for clients worldwide, is much more affordable than traditional offline counselling, and you can start communicating with your therapist in less than 24 hours in an online environment that's safe convenient and confidential for you. There's even financial aid available for the service if it's needed. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses from a counsellor that you can get in touch with anytime. You can schedule weekly video or phone sessions with them if you wish. And all this without the uncomfortableness that goes with sitting around in a waiting room because nobody likes doing that, do they? I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com forward slash TCE and join over 1 million people who've taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp.com forward slash TCE. In Pressbury Village, meanwhile, a large-scale search involving 70 officers had immediately gotten underway for the missing girl, with every room of every building in the Pressbury and its outer-lying areas, which is some 4,000-plus rooms in total, being searched. Teams of police officers had begun intensive house-to-house inquiries, and the process of questioning some 700 residents of the area in a door-to-door check Roadblocks had been set up on each of the routes out of the village and hundreds of motorists being stopped and questioned. Civilian volunteers were out scouring the rural areas. RAF helicopters were out in force. Even mountain rescue volunteers and members of a Stockport caving club were out searching abandoned mines stretching as far as Alderley Edge and the Teg's Nose area in case Susan had been left in one of these. The surge was massive. The inquiries continued throughout the night, the real-time urgency to find Susan superseding any need for villagers' beauty sleep, and adding to that urgency was the fact that that night, the already bitterly cold February temperatures had dropped even further to a perishing minus 6 degrees. 
Susan could be being held in an outdoor premises somewhere, and as her parents had told police that she'd left for work that Friday morning, dressed in only a maroon-coloured knee-length skirt, grey polo necked sweater and black cardigan, these were all she was wearing for protection against the cold. They said that she kept a pair of wooden-soled sandals at the bank to change into, and had left home that morning wearing a thick winter coat, but these items had been found still in the bank during the initial sweep of the premises. So wherever Susan was, and even if she had managed to escape from her abductor, she would have no protection against the bitterly cold weather. At five minutes past noon the following day, Saturday 26th of February 1977, the Divisional Police Headquarters in the town of Stockport received a short anonymous telephone call where a man's gruff voice told them, Just listen, Susan the Clark is behind the old railway line up near Rudyard Lake. He then rang off. A team of officers willing to cover every possible angle in the search for Susan were immediately dispatched to Rudyard Lake, a reservoir and popular tourist destination near the town of Leek in the neighbouring county of Staffordshire, some 15 miles away from the Pressbury Bank. After a three-hour search, on moorland high above the reservoir, in a spot between the villages of Rushton Spencer and Meerbrook, known locally as Gun Hill, one of the searching officers, PC Roger Holleran, made a horrific and tragic discovery. Bound and gagged, Huddled against a dry stone wall adjacent to a bridle path known as Eleven Lane Ends, lay the body of Susan Hockenhall, covered in ice. A later post-mortem, conducted by Home Office pathologist Dr Alan Usher, revealed no marks of violence upon her body, and there was no sign or evidence of any sexual assault. But Susan's body showed pink patching to the skin around the large joints of the body as well as swelling around the ankles, whilst an internal examination revealed edema of the lungs and shallow acute ulcers to the stomach lining. It led to one definite conclusion. Cause of death was determined to be as a result of exposure to the elements. The temperature on the previous Friday evening had dropped to at least minus 6 degrees centigrade, which up on the exposed Staffordshire moorland would feel significantly at least twice colder than that due to the wind chill factor. And as we said, the tragic girl was clad only in a skirt, polo neck sweater and cardigan. Susan had been frog-marched from the bank to the killer and now her kidnappers wait in Maxi saloon car, barefoot and dressed only in a casual working clothes before being driven the 15 miles to the bleak upland moors where she'd met her death, some 1,200 metres above sea level and well above the snow line. Scars that were later found upon her knees and knuckles suggested that by the time the killer had parked there, she was already bound in some way at that stage and had been dragged to the lonely spot. When Susan was found, she was tied in a complex ligature made from torn strips of a jacket and pullover that secured her hands behind her back, but that was also connected to a fastening around her neck, the whole design producing a tension in her bonds. Any significant movement from her arms or head would have tightened the hold on her throat, choking her. The killer had also callously trussed up her ankles so she couldn't walk. 
unable to move or to free herself, try as she might, absolutely immobile and not even able to scream as she'd been tightly gagged. Hypothermia had gradually set in, and Susan hadn't stood a chance, abandoned to die there by her captor in that lonely spot. How absolutely horrendous is that? Susan had frozen to death either late on the Friday night or in the early hours of the Saturday morning, unable to move. Now just take in for a moment the horror of that, how someone could be so callous to abandon someone to die so horrifically. It's wicked almost beyond belief, isn't it? Because she wouldn't have been able to move due to how the killer had left her trussed up, police were immediately dealing with Susan's death as a case of murder, and inquiries got underway at houses in the leak area to establish any potential witnesses of anything suspicious. Almost immediately, police found one witness who believed that she'd seen something. The woman, 61-year-old Rita Alshul, who lived in nearby Gun End, explained that she'd been taking a dog out the previous afternoon and adopted to use one of the walking routes that she regularly took that skirted the track that led up to the moors where Susan's body had been found. She told officers, At one point on the track, a van was parked and I had to squeeze my way past it. Because I had so little room, I couldn't help but see what was going on inside. I saw that there was a man and a girl huddled together in the back. They were covered partly by a rug, but I could see that they were both young. She was fair, and he had a dark beard. Asked if they possibly could have been a courting couple, Rita replied, I thought so, but I'm not so sure now. There was something about the way he was holding the girl's neck that made me suspicious. He wasn't so much holding it as gripping it tightly. As I walked away, the couple didn't look up, but I'm sure they must have seen me. Rita furthered that as she'd walked away from where the van was parked, she'd met a neighbour of hers, Stan Keeling, who was also out walking his dog. The subject of the van and the couple was brought up, and Stan mentioned that he too had seen the van being driven along the track to where Rita had seen it parked. When Stan was spoken to by police, he confirmed Rita's story, and he thought that the van was a dark blue Ford Escort model in relatively good tidy condition. However, he added that was not the only time he'd seen the van, telling police. The van wasn't very old and was quite smart and clean. I saw it come back about half an hour after I first spotted it. There was a man with a dark beard driving, but there was no passenger in the other seat. He was driving quite normally and looked fairly relaxed. Based on this information, roadblocks were now set up in Presbury once again, and motorists were once again stopped and questioned. Many of these travelled each day through the small village, and it was thought that some might have seen and passed the dark blue van the previous day, but had not solicited this information because at the time, they would not have realised its relevance. Several witnesses had reported seeing a young blonde woman leaving the bank at about 12.30pm on the day of the murder, which would have been halfway through the time it was closed for lunch, and that she was accompanied by a young man whose left hand was underneath her armpit, as though he was guiding her forcefully. Now I couldn't think of a different word to use there, guiding her, getting into a blue vehicle. In his other hand he held something bulky, which appeared to be a bag of some sort. 
The descriptions from each of these, down to the location and descriptions of the young woman, and the clothing that the young woman was wearing, indicated that this was Susan and her kidnapper, the killer of both her and Ian Jeb. The witnesses were also able to describe the man in full, although a description of the man was withheld from being published so as to not unduly influence any potential further witnesses. By the Monday after the murders, by which time the substantial reward of £50,000 for information leading to the arrest and conviction of Susan and Ian's killer had been sanctioned by Williams and Glynn Bank, police were convinced it was a local person they were seeking, as they were left with three questions that they kept coming back to. Why did the killer choose a smaller, rural branch where the possible haul would always be less? Why did the killer leave money in the bank? Was he known to either of the clerks? It seemed to police that although the raid had been planned, the kidnapping and possibly even the murder hadn't been. Perhaps he and Jeb had been brutally killed as he'd tried to activate the alarm with his feet, and from then onward it unravelled fast, causing the robber-turned-killer to quickly grab whatever cash was easiest to hand from the drawers or else why would you leave £10,000 if it's there? With the adrenaline flowing and having no clear plan except flight, why then did he kidnap Susan and have to deal with a hostage also? The kidnapping being a spur-of-the-moment thing was given weight when a search of the moorland area where Susan's body had been discovered bore up two important clues. Pieces of a brown jacket and a blue pullover were found nearby, parts of the items that had been torn up to make Susan's ligatures. Now what kidnapper plans an abduction without restraints? Was Susan taken simply because she could have identified him? But an even more important clue was in a scrap of paper found some yards away against the stone wall. It appeared to be a work invoice that bore several numbers and undecipherable words on it, but the name K. James, written in red ink, could be made out. Now the invoice was traced to a repair firm that serviced banking equipment, time locks and adding machines, that type of thing, and that one of the firm's directors was a Mr James. When he was spoken to the following day, he identified the invoice as indeed coming from the company and told police that the Presbury branch of the Williams and Glynn Bank was one of the customers that the firm undertook repairs and servicing for. The man who serviced the machines for the Presbury branch was a repair mechanic named David Walsh, a married 30-year-old who lived in nearby Macclesfield with his wife, Linda. On February 28, 1977, David Walsh was arrested at his Macclesfield home and taken to the town's police station, whilst other detectives spoke to his neighbours about him. Almost all of them pointed out to police a second-hand Mini Cooper that was parked outside the Walsh's house, telling police that it had only appeared there over the weekend, whilst another who knew the Walsh's fairly better than others went so far as to say that David Walsh had also splashed a fair amount of cash that weekend on luxury items including a radio cassette player, a guitar, an expensive pair of clocks and several items of jewellery for his wife. When asked why this was so memorable, the neighbour replied that it was because David Walsh was always complaining that he was so bloody skinned he couldn't even pay attention, always being short of cash and in debt to someone or another. Further investigations showed this to be indeed true. 
In fact, David Walsh was so much in debt that he and his wife were in danger of facing eviction from their council house owing to rent arrears of £37.25. He also had a then very sizeable debt of over £464 that he owed for a Honda motorcycle, a £729 higher purchase debt for a Rover car, which he'd been taken to court for and ordered to repay the debt, and a personal loan of £40. At the police station, Detective Chief Superintendent Williams and other senior officers began questioning Walsh, firstly requesting a sample of his handwriting, so it could be checked against the writing on the scrap of invoice that had been found near Susan's body. After a 32-hour interrogation, punctuated with meal breaks and rest periods, the officers were convinced that David Walsh knew more about the crimes than he was telling them. He couldn't give a satisfactory answer when asked to explain where his newfound wealth had come from, for a search of Walsh's home in Warwick Road in Macclesfield had revealed a loose floorboard on the landing. When it was lifted, inside was found £31 in new notes in a rubber band, a box containing £101.45 in 50 pence pieces and smaller denomination, and a plastic bag containing £66.60 in 50 pence and 10 pence pieces. The £1 notes of this money were easily recognisable, as they contained numbers in sequence from serial numbers going from EW5814. 10501 to EW5814-10600 and EW5814-10801 to EW5814-11000. They were part of a shipment of notes from which money had been issued to customers at the Presbury Bank on the morning of the murder, which had been delivered to the bank two days beforehand. On Wednesday the 2nd of March 1977, David Walsh appeared at Wilmslow Magistrates Court charged with robbery of the Presbury Williamson Glynn Bank and the murders of Ian Jebb and Susan Hockenhall. His appointed solicitor, Pat McManus, made no application for bail and Walsh was remanded to Risley Remand Centre near Warrington to await trial. In the following few weeks, detectives learned that David Walsh was the youngest of triplets, and whilst the other two had grown up and done well for themselves, becoming successful businessmen, the youngest Walsh was about as much use as an ashtray on a motorbike, and he was now facing double murder charges. Within three months of their birth in Chesterfield in Derbyshire in 1946, the three had been abandoned by their parents and sent to children's homes. But unlike his older siblings, the youngest Walsh was never a natural academic and had left school in 1961 to begin work as a car wash attendant, a job that gave way a year later to him becoming an apprentice welder. However, in what was to become a recurring pattern, neither of these roles was to work out and lead to long-term employment for him. He would gain and lose jobs for similar reasons over the ensuing years, a poor attitude, appalling attendance records, and lost jobs from the coal board and as a machine operator for these very reasons. In 1963, Walsh decided that a career in the armed forces may be the way forward for him, and he successfully managed to join the army, enlisting in the Royal Engineers. But just a year later, his natural character had shone through once more, and the army discharged him, 
deciding after just a year's service that he was, I quote, undesirable. Long bouts of unemployment followed this, interspersed with spells of imprisonment for petty theft, but by 1972, Walsh had found a career, a role that interested him, and that he showed some aptitude for, repairing business adding machines. During the next four years, he worked for six different companies in this role, travelling around the country. It was not only work that he enjoyed doing, but travelling about also allowed him to indulge a passion that he had for fast driving, which inevitably had also gotten him into trouble with police on several occasions. If he wasn't in trouble with the law, then he was trying on his travels with some success to bed impressionable young girls, and had a string of mistresses leading to him and his long-suffering wife being off and on like a light switch. Friends and acquaintances of Walsh told police how, perpetually in debt, he'd cheated his way out of several of these, and that how he, when he wanted cars or goods, but he couldn't afford them, he'd simply gone out and stolen them. In the 14 months that he'd been living in Macclesfield before the murders, they told police how he'd borrowed money countless times to buy such items as hi-fi equipment, cars and motorbikes, including a Ford Escort van, a minivan, a 750cc motorcycle, an Austin 1100 and an Austin Maxi, and had then sold these, but made no attempt to pay any of the loans back to his creditors, leading to the debts that were mentioned before. He also lived as somewhat of a Walter Mitty character. For example, he'd learned to play the piano and guitar, but elaborated on this into a successful stage career that he had that he would boast of having to anyone who would listen to him. He'd drop hints to the same unwitting audience that he had several connections within the world of show business, and would tell many an impressionable teenager that with his eyes and ears for talent, plus these connections, he could groom them for a career in the world of pop music. It was all an absolute shamble of bollocks. Instead, when the police looked into his employment record since he'd left school in 1961, as we've heard, he'd had more jobs than the Incredible Hulk and Frank Spencer put together. And although in each of these roles he'd never been what you could call badly paid, money seemed to always slip through his fingers, and living well beyond his means, he was constantly skint and in debt. It was thought that the threat of facing eviction from the council house that he and his wife shared had been the final straw for Walsh. He'd searched for some way to get the money that he owed, but long since having exhausted the goodwill of his would-be creditors, Walsh had decided to rob the Presbury branch of Williams and Glynn Bank. He knew the layout of the premises and the setup of the bank, meaning how many employees would be on it each time, he knew it well, for he'd been there many times to service the equipment as part of his employment. But he'd left it as close to the deadline for his arrears to be paid as he possibly could have, for they were due the day he was up in court, charged with two murders. Just four days before bailiffs would have walked through his front door armed with a warrant, David Walsh had walked into the bank and had confronted Ian Jebb and Susan Hockenhall. Less than four hours after the bank staff had found Ian dead inside, and Susan missing, Walsh had paid off the £40 personal loan he owed, before buying a Mini Cooper for Linda for £380 that he paid for in £10 notes. The following day, suddenly, flush with cash, Walsh had gone on a spending spree like Liberace, explaining that he'd been given £800 by a friend. 
when he appeared at Chester Crown Court later that year in October 1977, accused of the two murders and robbery, Walsh issued a plea of not guilty to all of the charges he faced. Counsel for the prosecution, Nigel Fricker QC, described how Ian Jebb had been overpowered by the older Walsh, had been gagged and bound with electrical flex before being stabbed through the heart. He told the court, Susan Hockenhall was then forced to leave the bank with the killer a few minutes before the bank was due to reopen after lunch. She was then taken on what would transpire to be the final journey of her life to a desolate spot on the Staffordshire Moors some 15 miles away. Despite the bitter cold, the killer did not let Susan take her outdoor clothing with her. She was taken into the Staffordshire Hills to a place that it's a beauty spot. It was probably freezing the afternoon. It was certainly freezing that night. Susan was then bound by the neck and hands to her feet and then gagged. She could not call for help. She was too securely gagged. She could not escape. She was too securely bound. She could not possibly survive the sub-zero temperatures of that night and her abductor, the killer, must have known that. Then, as police started the hunt for Susan, her abductor went on a spending spree with the money that had been stolen from the bank. He paid off some of his debts, bought his wife a car, he bought a radio, a guitar and several other expensive items. Having stolen that money, he was converted from a man with financial pressures to a man who could afford to buy luxuries. Several experts and witnesses for the Crown appeared at the trial to give evidence, including both doctors who had performed the separate post-mortems on Ian and Susan, Dr Garrett and Dr Usher. A statement read to the court from PC Roger Holloran explaining how he had discovered Susan's body. Forensic scientist Robin Houle, who told the court details of a Cuban healed bootprint in blood found at the bank that were found to match perfectly a pair of Walsh's, and Williamson Glynn Bank employee Brian Stockdale. Now Brian was a former employee at the Presbury branch who was one of the two sent from Macclesfield to find out what was up. Brian going especially because he knew the branch well. It had been his job that his friend Ian Jebb had taken only two days before and Brian told the court how he had triggered the police alarm after what he found. In court, Brian also identified signatures on some of the notes paid by Walsh for the mini as containing his own handwriting. He'd scribbled on several only a couple of days before the murders, before he left the Presbury branch. The only witness to appear for the defence was David Walsh himself, who admitted to the court beforehand that he had previous convictions for obtaining money by forgery, stealing a chequebook, forging cheques, including obtaining £200 fraudulently at Sheffield the previous year, and theft of vehicles. He admitted that he'd been to the bank on both the Thursday, installing a new adding machine, and again on the day of the murder, but had only needed to return on the Friday, because on the Thursday he had not had a vital piece of kit for the tally roll holder he had fitted to an existing machine he had claimed in court. He had done this in the morning and had had a cup of tea with Susan, who he knew, claiming, I thought she was a very nice girl, cheerful. He did not know Ian Jebby said, but he had seen him there the previous day. During this second visit, Walsh claimed he had exchanged some torn notes that were in his possession for newer ones from Susan 
and had been issued some £31 in exchange. He had left the bank before its 12.30pm lunchtime closing with all fine and had been on his way to Manchester at the time of the murders. This was all Walsh was to admit as everything else that was put to him was met with a firm denial or some bollocks explanation. Like when questioned about the money found underneath his floorboards, Walsh claimed that this hoard was the proceeds from the sale of a number of items, some of which were obtained by credit card fraud, to a second-hand dealer, Bob Marriott, who appeared in court and refuted all of this. Further, Walsh claimed he had obtained £25 on each of the credit cards. The spending spree Walsh had gone on on the day after the murders, and that was estimated that with the car, the guitar, the expensive clocks and the gifts of jewellery, to have been some £2,250 in total. That was from a combination of £500 that he claimed his brother Michael had given him to look after, claiming he didn't want his wife to know he had it, and £700 from a man who had offered to set Walsh up in business and had bought a car from him for £700. So not only could he not add up, which is ironic for someone who repaired adding machines for a living, but he couldn't explain either why, following the testimony of housing officer Harry Bowman, that his wife Linda had, on the Monday following the murders, had paid £66, the couple's rent arrears, the current rent, and £15 for a distress warrant fee, with £5 notes that were later traced from Macclesfield Town Hall and found to correspond to the sequence of numbered notes found underneath the floorboards in his Macclesfield home, that as we said, had come from Presbury Bank. Brian Stockdale's signature was even found on some of these notes. Further, Walsh claimed that blood that was found on the banknotes underneath the floorboards was from a cut finger of his, and that blood found on his Cuban-heeled boots, which matched perfectly, as we've said, an imprint in a pool of blood at the bank, had either come from a small boy who had been injured who Walsh had stopped to help a few days before the murders, or when he had admitted himself to Salford Royal Hospital a week previously as a casualty following an accident. He also claimed that workmates of his, who had testified to police that Walsh had shown each of them a double-bladed sheath knife with a four-inch blade that he had had on several occasions, were lying, saying, That is completely false. Without any doubt whatsoever, that is a complete and utter lie. The last time I had one was when I was a little lad in the scouts. It set the tone for Walsh's evidence, which concluded with, I did not rob that bank, and I did not kill Ian Jeb or Susan Hockenhall. But as the trial continued, it soon became apparent that police had a serious problem. Before the evidence of officers could be heard, Presiding Mr Justice Crichton had directed that the jury leave court so that a point of legality could be discussed. The subsequent exchange between Mr Justice Crichton and the senior investigating officer, Detective Chief Superintendent Williams, is as follows. Mr Justice Crichton, why did you hold Walsh for as long as 32 hours before charging him with any crime? Williams, I was seeking the truth. I felt that he had something to tell us but I could not get the words out. That is the reason I continued with the questioning. Crichton, did you, during that time, tell Walsh of his rights or explain that he was being arrested? Williams, no I did not. 
The murder weapon and the stolen money were still missing, and I was hoping to get some clue as to where they were. I knew he had done it, I was trying to get him to admit the offence. I did not charge him because, if I had, we would not have been able to ask him any more questions. Now not unkindly, Mr Justice Crichton added the following. It is possible that the question of cruelty, deprivation, oppression or impropriety might be raised. I want to make it clear that in my opinion, none of these things were attempted. I thank you for your frank answer, and I would like for the record to show that I commend you for your honesty. I have come to the conclusion at a very early stage, before any admissions were made, that you, Mr Williams, ought to have charged this man. Police don't tell people they are being arrested. They tell people that they are being detained so they can still answer questions. It is happening every day throughout the country and it is questionable whether it is right. However, I must rule that any police evidence concerning the questioning of the defendant will not be allowed in court. Also, the written statement alleged to have been made by the defendant will be inadmissible as evidence. Proper ooh bollocks moment that, eh? However, Remember the evidence that had already been heard. It's pretty strong, to say the least, isn't it? One of Walsh's neighbours managed to save the day for police. She told the court concerning Walsh. He once boasted to me that if he ever robbed a bank, it would be the one in Presbury, where he called to service their machines. He said that it would be easy to do, because the security was so lax. I didn't think any more of it, knowing Walsh, even when I saw a new car standing outside his house. During the closing speeches on the eighth day of the trial, Wednesday the 19th of October 1977, Mr Fricker told the court, I invite you in mind to bear the picture as a whole. A jigsaw is cut so that the pieces fit together. Human life is not like that. You will not be able to fit together every piece of evidence but they do present a clear, positive picture that this defendant is guilty of the charges. It is so clear and positive that you should be sure that he is guilty. You are the judges of fact and must make your own minds up about the evidence. It's the prosecution who have to prove he's guilty. He doesn't have to say anything. He doesn't even have to say a word. But it was open to him to bring evidence to support what he says. Christopher Rose QC for the defence told the court that there were three questions the jury must ask themselves. How could Walsh have done what was alleged in the bank and left no fingerprints save the single one found on the adding machine which he'd been repairing? Did Walsh, on February the 25th, fit a witness description of the man leaving the bank with Miss Hockenhall? Who made the telephone call to police telling them where she was? Now the jury had heard enough however. On Thursday the 20th of October 1977, after a three and a half hour deliberation, the jury returned unanimous verdicts of guilty to the murder of Ian Jebb and the charge of robbery, but informed the judge that they were unable to reach a unanimous verdict in the case of Susan Hockenhall. They were invited to retire once again to reconsider their verdict in Susan's case, which they did so and just six minutes later, returned to the courtroom with yet another unanimous verdict of guilty. For the charge of robbery, David Walsh was sentenced to serve 15 years imprisonment, whereas for the two murders, double life sentences of course, 
with each of the sentences to run concurrently. Mr Justice Crichton told him, You have been convicted by the jury of three cruel and grave crimes, two of them involving the intention of taking the lives of two young and innocent people. In my opinion, you are a very dangerous man, and I will recommend that you stay in prison for a term no less than 25 years. Walsh was then taken away to begin his life sentences. Susan and Ian's shattered parents then left the court in tears, having been in the public gallery to see Walsh convicted. Midway through the trial, a relative of Walsh's had received a letter from him in which he wrote, I must have faith in God. I will have the faith to face it if I know you're in court. The relative had indeed been in court, but was so disgusted that she'd left the hearing after just 30 minutes. She said later, I was disgusted. His family had tried to give him the benefit of the doubt. Weeks ago on a prison visit, I pleaded with him to admit his guilt if he'd committed the crimes to save the families of the two bank clerks going through the entire ordeal again. But he told us that he was completely innocent. I'm convinced that he'd really begun to believe his own lies. David Walsh was never to explain his reasons for the double murder. He'd served more than his recommended tariff of 25 years, when on April the 1st, 2003, having served 25 years and 6 months imprisonment, he collapsed and died in his cell at Gartry Prison in Leicestershire, aged 57. Now there is an aside to this tale, as is revealed in Dr Garrett's book. On the day of the murders, whilst the initial check of the crime scene had been made as soon as Ian's body had been discovered, the search for missing Susan, who for all intents and purposes could at that point still be alive somewhere, held or injured, had superseded a detailed examination. But in the initial sweep, police had noticed that sandwiches, an ice bun and a packet of crisps lay on a desk half eaten. Lunch that had been brought in by either one of the two victims, or perhaps even the killer. Little else of obvious significance was spotted during the initial search, but it was considered that the half-eaten food could provide a vital clue from the bite marks. Now we've already heard in a past episode of the show a few series back called Teeth Marks how this can trap a killer, so it was noted and a police officer was posted to protect the scene overnight. The following morning, when a detailed examination of the crime scene had begun, after the officer tasked to guard the premises overnight, PC Justin Hardy had gone off duty, detectives discovered two remarkable things. The sandwiches and the potential teeth marks, possibly from the killer, that were in place at the scene the previous day had now disappeared, and more alarmingly, an officer discovered a series of what seemed to be ransom notes that appeared as though they'd been drafted at the scene beforehand, saying things like, £20,000 and the girl goes free. Chief Superintendent Williams proper lost his shit, he proper went ballistic as to how one important piece of potential evidence could go missing, whilst another, a vitally important one, could be missed in the initial checks. The answer lay with the officer who'd been left alone in the premises all night, 20-year-old PC Justin Hardy, the son of a serving district judge. To pass the time, 
because there was no Candy Crush back then or anything like that, he'd played mind games with himself and fancying himself as a bit of a Columbo had tried to imagine what was going through the killer's mind. He'd scribbled a series of ransom notes which read along the lines of £20,000 and the girl goes free in a manner similar to which he considered the killer had considered and had then thrown them into the waste paper basket. Then, through the night, he'd taken a long look at the lunch which was later determined to have been Susan's usual lunch but especially the sandwiches and bearing in mind their potential evidential value at the time feeling hungry in the early hours PC Hardy had eaten them although he left the ice bun and the crisps. Yes, seriously, you couldn't make it up, could you? So as destined to a career in the police force as Karen Matthews is to a place on a PTA board PC Hardly wisely almost immediately resigned from the Cheshire Constabulary, probably when his ears had stopped ringing from the bollocking that he undoubtedly got from his senior officers and his dad. I mean, imagine that for a chewing from a high court judge. Bloody idiot. The story of David Walsh and his actions is a horrendous tale, isn't it? I'm sure you'll agree. Such an extreme waste of lives for what equated upon reflection against the two lives he took to be for just under what equates to £100 each year until his death that he'd mostly gotten rid of and mostly on unnecessary crap just a day after the murders. That's what his actions were worth. It just boggles the mind, doesn't it? It seems to have been almost an act of desperation of sorts, robbing a branch of a bank that you're a frequent visitor to as a part of your employment. It's no bloody Ocean's Eleven master heist, that, is it? As though he's making it up on the spot. But what struck me the most, aside from the horrific and cowardly slaughter of Ian Jeb, stabbed whilst he was tied up, was to leave a helpless, trussed-up girl on a lonely, freezing moor to die for the reason that she could have identified him just to save his own skin so he could go out and buy pure crap that he didn't need. That is just wicked beyond belief. Remorseless. Never mind calling police almost a day later to alert them to where Susan was. It's a bloody empty gesture that, isn't it, when she'd be long dead. Clearly Susan would have been able to identify Walsh when he robbed the bank and she'd witnessed him commit horrific murder. So when the pair left the bank as kidnapper and hostage, Walsh knew that the girl was a massive threat to his freedom. And when it came down to it, he was left with a simple enough choice. He could let her go, in which case she would identify him and he'd go to prison for a lengthy stretch, like life, or he could kill her. In which case the eyewitnesses against him were both dead and unable to talk to police. He decided that his freedom which was to equate to only two more days, was worth much more than the life of the shy 19-year-old and simply, but so cruelly, left her to die a terrifying, agonising death like that. I mean, either act would have been depraved enough, but if he was set on killing her, then it would have been surely much more merciful to inflict a swift death upon her as he had with Ian Jeb. Imagine two young lives cut short simply for doing their job all to save his own skin. Imagine how their families and Ian's fiancée and Susan's boyfriend, imagine the horror they had to live with, the senselessness of it and the pain of imagining their loved one's final moments. You can't even imagine it, can you? You don't even want to go there. 
Walsh deserved every single moment of the years that he spent behind bars, where I can imagine being responsible for such cowardly murders, it wouldn't have won him too many friends in prison, would it? And if he did suffer in prison, well, it's something that I wouldn't lose a wink of sleep over. None whatsoever. As I said on the outset of the tale, now I did visit Presbury myself while I was researching this episode, and I took a couple of videos showing the former Williams and Glynn Bank today, which was formerly a library, but is today an estate agent's, and they're now up having been released alongside the episode, so make sure that you go and check them out. I would love as always hearing your thoughts and feedback concerning the tale, which you can do up in the thread for the episode that's in the show's Facebook discussion group, or through any of the show's social media links. I don't mind, I'm always happy to hear from you guys wherever. That's about it for this time around. It's back to researching and writing yet another tale, which you can catch me back for on March the 11th, True A Crime Thursday. In the meantime, I hope to catch some of you guys before then, on the 4th of March on Crowdcast, and of course, I hope to catch some of you in a couple of days for the next bonus Patreon episode, Disfigured. All that's left for me to say then is that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you guys good and safe times, and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care all, thanks very much for joining me, and goodbye for now.